You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today, we have the CEO and founder of RoyalCoin and Steamroll, Clarence Wooten. Welcome to the show, Clarence. Ah, It's great to be here, Jamalin. Thanks for having me. Let's dive right in. You're an OG uh, here in Silicon Valley. Share your story with us. Yeah, I know it's interesting you say I'm an OG here in Silicon Valley because, you know, my tech career started long before I even arrived in Silicon Valley. Um, I had Silicon Valley connections. Uh, I tapped into Silicon Valley law firms, but I started off doing it from Maryland, from the East Coast. So when I came to Silicon Valley in 2011, I was surprised to see that there were not a lot of brothers uh, who were entrepreneurs who were doing it at a high level here in Silicon Valley. I got introduced to tech at an early age through video games. I'm going to take you way back. Um, you know, I was an only child, didn't grow up with a lot of money, but each Christmas I could get one big gift. And when I was a kid, I got a Atari computer, you know, well, not even a computer. I got an Atari game system and started playing games and, um, fell in love with playing video games, but I couldn't afford the cartridges. They were too expensive. My parents couldn't afford to keep buying me cartridges. So someone told um, me that if I got a Commodore computer, I could copy games. Now, again, so I guess I am an OG because half these people haven't even heard of Commodore these days. But and that kind of blew my mind. Then someone said, if you get a modem, you could download games which blew my mind even further. So as a young teenager, I, you know, I got caught up and I got caught up in computers. Uh, and so that's really what first exposed me to tech and in some ways exposed me to entrepreneurship. Fast forwarding, after finishing college in the mid nineties, uh, I immediately, um, there was this new thing called the dot-com explosion that was taking place. And I had, a, I had started a company in college uh, a multimedia company called Metamorphosis Interactive Studios. And we were doing CD-ROM-based edutainment software. Then the bottom fell out of the CD-ROM market and this thing called the web started taking off. And, it, and I started noticing that anything that had a dot-com name on it was able to raise a lot of funding. So we kind of pivoted our business and we started building websites. How much equity did you own in that venture? Well, Metamorphosis Studios, it was just me and an old business partner of mine, a guy named Andre Ford. Um, so we were 50-50 partners. We were a service business, right? So it wasn't really that sophisticated. I wasn't really sophisticated as it, as it related to capitalizing a business or any of that. I, I became more sophisticated over time because I became a student of Silicon Valley, right? I, I read this book called Burn Rate. Um, and it talked about this law firm in Silicon Valley called Wilson Sonsini. And this is, this is like in 1996, 97, I'm reading this book. Um, and, while, and I also watched the guys at Yahoo go from, you know, PhD students to having received $3 million in funding from Sequoia. And that was eye-opening to me. So at that particular point, I wanted to get out of the service business and start, and, and start a true.com, but I recognized I would have to learn leverage, learn how to leverage other people's money and other people's time in order to truly grow a true tech startup. And that's when I became a student of Silicon Valley. After that came the creation of imagecafe.com. Um, Image, Image Cafe was kind of the world's first superstore of prefabricated websites to go kind of like Wix and what Squarespace is today. Uh, we were acquired in November of 99 by Network Solutions, which back then had a monopoly on domain names. They were pretty much what GoDaddy is today. And so that really solidified my path as an entrepreneur. 
And uh, I was fortunate because we all know in 2000, the bubble burst and many of those dot coms went out of business. So um, I, I kind of hit that market right. And, um, you know, it kind of changed my life because you know, I didn't grow up with any money. So that gave me sort of resources to continue in this space. And I've been kind of a serial. What was the size of that exit? How many employees in there? How much yeah, money? Yeah. So, you know, we had raised about 750000 uh, I literally tell people I went from I went to Sil- I went from Silicon Valley to Silicon Alley raising money because at the time I was doing that startup I was based in Columbia Maryland right so far away from Silicon Valley but uh, it was the dawn of the dot com era um, but I, I took advantage of Silicon Valley resources I had relationships out here I kind of laughed because back then it was a young attorney at um, Wilson Sonsini named Mike Arrington who was my attorney. Uh, Mike later went on and, and, and founded TechCrunch, you know, many years later. But six years prior, he was my attorney at, at Image Cafe. So the exit, we ended up, we were acquired for $23 million, which, um, you know, was, it doesn't sound like a big exit today since we're in a, you know, age of unicorn companies and, and billion dollar exits. But, um, you know, for an African-American kid from Baltimore who didn't grow up with money, whose parents didn't really have a lot of money, uh, it was game changing. You know, particularly from my neighborhood, no one expected me to really do anything. But to turn around and, and do that, you know, really, you know, uh, put me on the map. And um, yeah, walk us through, uh, you, you know, you're, you're selling your company, you, you have a buyer. Walk uh, the audience through the process, the negotiation, yeah. and how that played out. Yeah, well, first off, I really wasn't selling the company, right? Um, because, you know, if you sell a company, you're not going to get a premium. If you're acquired, you'll get a premium. So it's the difference between putting a for sale sign out in your yard or having somebody knock on your door and say, we want your house, get out. Right. So um, so we weren't really selling a company. I was in the middle of raising a Series A. Um, and I, as part of that series, a, we recognized that we needed distribution and network solutions had distribution. They were selling millions of domain names each month. Um, and a domain name was like a building permit and a website was the building. So we knew that if we could get in their shopping cart, purchase flow, that we could help them maybe double their market cap if they could sell two websites, which were a higher ticket item than domain names for every, you know, 10 domain names they sold. And by the time we really articulated that vision and strategy to them, because we wanted them to participate in our, as a strategic investor in our Series A, um, their new CEO started writing on a wall and was like, we need to own these guys. And so back then everything was about speed to market. So when they originally reached out, to want to sort of acquire the company. I said no, because I had spent several months months trying to get Draper, um, um, a firm in New York called Argentum and Network Solutions, all to co-invest. And um, then it became clear that maybe I should take some of this off the table. You know, I had a young daughter at the time um, and uh, I looked in her eyes and I'm like, you know what? You know, because I had visions of being a billion dollar company. I thought we were selling too soon. But I'm glad I took the money off the table because we all know what happens six months after um, Image Cafe was acquired by Network Solutions. The bubble bursts and financial downturn hits. And um, yeah, so people thought the web had died until Web 2.0, which was sort of the next big movement. So your current company, uh, Steamroll, and your coin, Rollcoin, you're leveraging blockchain 
you have your own cryptocurrency. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that in terms of how you're uh, applying blockchain technology? Yeah. So first, before I talk about Rollcoin, I'm going to talk a little bit about Steamroll. Um, so because for us, um, you know, the ICO is the icing, it's not the cake. You know, the cake is our company. And so Steamroll, we're a mission-driven company, and we spell it Steam, R-O-L-E. Steam is in science, technology, engineering, art, design, and math. And Roll is in role model because uh, we bring those two things together. Um, and our mission is to help the workforce of the future discover whom they can become and how to get there. And we do that with our Steamroll mobile app. We want to make it so that busy Steam professionals like engineers at Google or designers at Nike or um, people at SpaceX can really showcase who they are and how they got to where they are in, in our app, which is analogous to kind of Tinder meets Snapchat for um, discovering your dream career. So we make it easy for these role models to sort of record little story clip videos about you know, how they grew up, who inspired them, et cetera, so that anyone, um, it, well, any steamer, we call our users steamers, and they are students and basically students and aspiring young professionals, primarily ages 13 to 30, but primarily I would say college students who are trying to figure out how to get to that next level, they can, you know, they can receive inspiration and guidance from a huge network of people who look like them, who are killing it in STEAM professions and actually learn their skills and earn while they learn. So we introduced Rollcoin as a cryptocurrency to kind of gamify the experience. So if you're a role model and you're sharing your story via the story clip videos, you are minting Rollcoin. Uh, if you're a student and you're following the roadmaps of role models, you are earning role coin while you learn. And um, um, so that's that's that was part of why we developed role coin. Um, the other piece to that is we realized we could build an economy around the company to tie all the actors in the ecosystem um, kind of together and to increase the probability of success of Steamroll, quite frankly. A lot of cryptos have been crushed. Bitcoin, Ether, a lot of people have been burned trying to get in on the hot thing. Uh, do you see uh, Bitcoin and Ether uh, recovering in the next, you know, two years? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell anybody who gets into the crypto space that this is a long game, not a short game. It's a reason why, despite all the negative press around crypto, that you still hear news that, you know, Main Street, Wall Street is getting into the game. It's a reason why, you know, Goldman Sachs is buying a crypto exchange. Um, Blockchain technology is here to stay. You know, it's it's distributed, it's global, and it can't be controlled by any one nation state. Um, it will be volatile because there's lots of FUD um, being spread about it. Some of it is very active, um, you know, very accurate, um, and you know, and there needs to be some level of regulation because there are a lot of bad actors. But ultimately, the long-term potential for this technology is unmistakable, and it's not going anywhere. Uh, I tell people all the time, it's going to be volatile, but it's volatility on a hockey stick curve. Yeah. Share your thoughts on how decentralization and blockchain could actually help solve some of the problems of inequality. And let's just use uh, black entrepreneurs for an example in terms of raising capital. Oh, yeah. Um, that's one of the things that really excited me about the whole ICO space in general. Um, you know, when I, when I look at um, Silicon Valley, 
um, you know, I've been here for quite a while. Uh, it's, it's almost a self-fulfilling prop- prophecy. If you are an entrepreneur and you're trying to get scale capital, um, and all the entrepreneurs that are getting scale capital from VCs look a certain way, then of course you're gonna, you know, uh, you fund a thousand of those guys, you're gonna get a Mark Zuckerberg or or Bill Gates out of that, a couple of them. Um, but um, you know, African Americans have not been successful by at large at raising scale capital, meaning enough capital to really sustain a business and allow a business model to take hold and, and begin to explode. And the ICO game has the potential of changing that. If you can tap into crowdfunding and, and incentivize an entire community to get them rallied around your business and investing in your token, and that gets you the scale capital you need, I think you'll begin to see more um, you know, black-led unicorn companies. So yeah, that's super exciting. Can you talk a little bit about the opportunities to tokenize uh, equity where, you know, I don't have to come to Sand Hill Road. I don't have to come to the top VCs, but there's ample liquidity out there to, to fund my startup. Uh, and just in terms of, you know, how you see the applications of blockchain tokenization playing out. Well, I mean, when I think about where we are, um, we're going through a major shift. I think the first shift was the Internet. Right. So that's going back about 30 years. Um, The next shift was mobile. Um, And I think this is the third shift, which is decentralization, which is which is blockchain. Um, And I think in this shift, assets are becoming digital and distributed. Right. And liquidity is becoming digital and distributed. So the notion of equity in itself um, probably begins to change. So, for example, you know, I've been an angel investor as well for a long time. And the level of diligence I have to do on an angel investment that's going to be illiquid um, because I'm going to own equity in this startup is significantly higher than the level of diligence I need to do on an angel investment that's going to be liquid within four months. So instead of being locked up for four years like a, t- a typical angel investment that I would make on a place like AngelList or in you know a young entrepreneur startup, in, in, in a tokenized world, in a world of ICOs, I might be locked up for four months. So I can get in and get out much quicker, which changes you know, sort of the whole element of diligence um, in general. So it, it changes the game quite a bit. So I, I, I love the fact that uh, I can acquire almost a proxy for equity. Not, I don't even need equity, right? Because at the end of the day, the point of owning equity is to be able to generate a return. If I can invest, you know, buy in or buy out of somebody's business in a highly liquid fashion, that gives me everything I need. So, you know, to me, that, that excites me to no end. And to be able to offer investors an opportunity to, to buy into what I'm building without technically giving them any equity, um, you know, through a token like Rollcoin is, um, is, is also interesting. Now, uh, I, I do think it's a, it's a, it's a very um, tight line between what is a utility and what is a security. So you kind of got to balance that. I think a lot of the old models that put, um, you know, assets into one or two of those, those buckets um, will have to change because in some ways tokens are a hybrid. They're a bit of utility and they're also um, a bit of a security. And until we really get our you know, um, 
clear rules around that. Um, you know, everyone's trying to sort of fudge it and protect themselves. But um, we believe that what we're doing is a utility token, but we're going to we're going to treat it in this country like it's a security. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamarley Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's get back to the podcast. What do you have to say to your uh, establishment venture capitalist who says, look, uh, the Indians out here, East Indians out here are being funded. There's some Asians being funded. Uh, hey, you know, this is a meritocracy. Black people are just not coming with what we're looking for yeah. in terms of A-plus yeah. game. You guys just not. Yeah. You got, you're, you're not getting high enough grades to be part of the elite team and stop crying about yeah. racism. What okay. do you got to say to that? Uh, well, first of all, I think it's hogwash to a certain extent because, you know, talent is equally distributed across race, gender, and geography, right? So let me repeat that. Talent is equally distributed across race, gender, and geography. Inspiration and guidance and opportunity are not, right? So um, understanding that notion, you have to ask yourself why aren't, quote unquote, blacks really killing it? And that's really part of why we, because uh, we kill it in everything else we do. We, we kill it in sports. You know, we kill it in, in any industry that we've been exposed to and we've been prepared for. Um, and, we, and, we do it, and we do it at a very, very high level in those industries. So why is that not happening in Silicon Valley? Um, which, is the real, which is really goes back to the reason we created Steamroll. Right. Because of the fact that um, information is widely available. Right. Right now we're in an age where you can pretty much learn anything if you have access to the Internet. But inspiration and guidance isn't. So, for example, if I'm a kid and I grow up in Palo Alto, I I know that, you know, if I get a job early enough at a company like Facebook or Google Watts Young, I can become a multi multi millionaire and do really, really well. Or even if I don't get a job early enough, those careers pay a lot of money and I can afford to live here. If I live in a place like rural Alabama or inner city Baltimore, like where I'm from, I don't have role models like that. So my role models become athletes and entertainers. And, you know, as a result, that's where I put my talent. And, you know, some of that talent you have to be born with. Um, so what we're doing with Steamroll is, you know, by empowering busy steam professionals to showcase who they are and how they got to where they are, we're trying to scale mentorship and scale inspiration and guidance so that anyone from anywhere can see an example of someone who looks like them, uh, who is killing it in steam and, and follow that roadmap. But that's not, I guess, to my question is for the, the white venture capitalists out here, um, you know, when he says, hey, or she says, hey, Indians come out here, they're getting funded. You guys are not getting funded at the same rate. Yeah. Don't tell us that we're racist. Yeah. You guys are just not bringing game. Like there's dark Indians. Yeah. There, you know, yeah. it's not a color yeah. thing. It's not a race thing. What do you get, what do you have to say well, to that point? Indians of view? didn't start out getting funded when they came here, right? Um, they, you know, um, they weren't getting funded. Period. Um, so they had to pull together themselves and and fund. Um, but I but I look at Indians in most 
um, you know, ethnic minorities uh, completely different than you look than I have to look at African Americans because when they come to this country, they come to this country together and they work together in unity. We came to this country in a different way. We didn't come in an organized fashion, you know, with structure um, where we can support each other financially. We came here on the bottom of ships, and so we don't have the same, um, you know. Um, uh, some of the same advantages that they have. So, so they were able to pull together and fund some of themselves early on um, until enough of them sort of became super successful and became, you know, shining examples that, hey, you know, you can bet on an Indian um, or an Asian and, and still build a unicorn company when that hasn't been seen in the African-American community because we haven't been able to fund ourselves enough to get the scale, but blockchain and crypto will enable us to do that. And once one of us, or more um, gets to that unicorn level, then you know we will change the perception. I don't buy that. So Ben Horowitz on Twitter, uh, he mentioned a point of view that uh, hey, once you have a few or one black unicorn, uh, the white investors are going to start opening up their their wallets. They're gonna they're gonna kind of change. Uh, I just don't I, I don't buy that. Why do we even need to wait for that? Right. So whether you buy it or I buy it, who wants to wait for that right now? You know, let's raise capital at scale, you know, leveraging what's in front of it, leveraging, leveraging black blockchain technology. Yeah. Right. And let's do, you know, what needs to be done. I mean, I think venture capital needs to change. The demographics of venture capital needs to be changed. You look at the Me Too movement that's creating, you know, more women um, at you know, at, at high level positions. I mean, the diversity discussion in Silicon Valley has really become about women, right? Yeah. You know, more so than about, you know, all diversity, it's about women, right? Because I guess that's more palatable and it's, and, and, and I champion that. I mean, I'm the father of two daughters, but diversity means diversity. It doesn't just mean women. It doesn't just mean black people. It means diverse and venture capital is not very diverse. And I think if venture capital becomes, as venture capital becomes more diverse, then so will, um, you know, you'll start seeing the equal distribution of, of unicorns and successful entrepreneurs because, you know, they'll be funded. People tend to fund who looks like them, who they're comfortable with, or who fits a particular, you know, um, template for what's been successful in the past. To that point, uh, I've heard of um, East Indian entrepreneurs, not black entrepreneurs, East Indian entrepreneurs mm -hmm. say that we need to hire a white executive or the investor tells them hire a white CEO, then I'll fund you. Have you heard like some of that stuff? Well, yeah, here? I mean, I think we've heard the same story from, you know, similar people. Um, uh, that was yesteryear. That's, you don't not, think that's not happening today. Okay, got it. No, no, no. That, yeah. that was yesteryear. Now you got the Vinod Koslas in Silicon Valley. You have, you know, um, the CEO of Google, right? So the perception of the Indian entrepreneur has changed drastically over the last But it still applies to the half. black entrepreneur. In terms, of, in terms of black entrepreneurs feeling or being pressured, like, you know, young entrepreneurs in Miami, for example, tech entrepreneurs, they're like, hey, should I bring some white executives to the team so I can get a fair look in terms of the credibility of my startup? Absolutely. That, that's a, absolutely. That's true. It's happening today. Um, do you and, recommend that? And do I recommend it? Bottom line is my view of raising capital is the Malcolm X view by any means necessary. So whatever you need to do to make your business a success, if you're an entrepreneur, it sucks, right? You know, the rules of the game might be different. Um, whatever you need to do, you need to do it to be, to be successful. And then when you get to the top, you can start thinking about how you can change it. 
right? So, but if we sit around and, you know, and and get upset um, because the the deck is stacked against us, um, we're wasting too much mental energy on things other than being successful. So we recognize that the deck is stacked. Um, so, so we just have to be twice as good to get half as far. As long as you know that, you, you, you're willing to put the work in. You've been in the game for a while. Right now, based on the current fundraising environment, where are you seeing young entrepreneurs make the biggest mistakes in terms of getting off the ground, uh, you know, based on your experience and the temperature out here in Silicon Valley? Yeah, you know, young entrepreneurs make the biggest mistakes across. Uh, you know, everybody, I, I think mistakes are actually good. Um, the, the key is fail fast and fail cheap. Learn from those mistakes. Well, but is there like a pattern of uh, mistakes that you've seen uh, where, hey, I wish I had the opportunity to mentor this sister or this brother where they just don't get it in terms of how the game works, where the market is, where the liquidity yeah, is, yeah. How, to, how to play the, this well, narrative? I think the belief that they can um, raise a significant amount of capital based on a business plan alone, or not a business plan, just a business model alone and a slide deck, um, that's a problem. You know, you cannot, particularly if you're in the software game, you cannot raise capital just based on a vision unless you're a repeat entrepreneur that's had a tremendous amount of success um, and your name and people recognize that you're going to be able to ultimately execute, right? So, um here in Silicon Valley, it's real important for you to understand that, um, and not just anywhere, if anybody who's going to invest in you based on an idea alone, they're not investing in your business. They're investing in you personally. So you need to you know, target your pitch towards investors that know you personally when you're at that stage. Now, once you get beyond that stage and you actually have um, a product now, you know, you can begin to raise capital because you've eliminated some execution risk in people's minds and you can begin to raise capital from 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 investors that don't necessarily, um, you know, know you, but can now see your vision because you've already executed some. So typically I see a lot of young entrepreneurs come here uh, without a product and they try to go after investors to back just their idea when no one's going to back your idea at that stage because it's really they're betting on you. So you, you got to continue to, you know, you got to find a way, whether your, your people have money or not, to find people who can get excited about you personally um, and find them as your earliest investors. Don't, don't waste time on other investors until you've gotten, you know, until you've actually gotten a product. So, you know, you've been out here a while. Uh, I, I'm sure as a black man, you faced challenges before the diversity stuff was popular. You know, you were in the game before diversity conversations came really came, you know, became really popular. Uh, first, can you share some of the challenges you've had as a black man here in Silicon Valley? And then, you know, I see people leave Silicon Valley like yeah. I'm not feeling the culture. Yeah, uh, I'm not finding the support I need. But you're right here in the belly of the beast and you're still doing it. You're working on another startup. You're staying right here in Silicon Valley. Can you talk about your approach? Yeah, I mean, despite um, its negatives, there's a lot of positives about being in Silicon Valley. I mean, the reason I ultimately came to Silicon Valley after having been in the tech game for years is because I came to the conclusion that the tech industry is a lot like the entertainment industry, right? You can be an actor and live anywhere, 
but you're not going to become Denzel or Will Smith unless you move to Hollywood. So I wanted to be, I didn't want to be a big fish in a small pond like Marilyn. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to come to where the deals were getting done. So Silicon Valley is not just about raising capital. Uh, it's an ecosystem of companies and people here, and, and it's a culture of entrepreneurship. And if you, if you really thrive off of that culture, um, then you will want to be in the belly of the beast. Now, um, so, so for me, I, I get excited by that. Um, but I do understand how a lot of people come out here um, and, you know, um, don't stick around because they just don't, they don't feel a warm and welcome environment. The same thing happens to minorities when we end up in big tech companies and we find out we're the only woman or the only black engineer in a team. It's lonely, right? Yeah. So um, I think part of my upbringing helps me with this helps me you know i i'm from inner city baltimore but i grew just, up you know to a certain extent are you, are you just harder than a lot of the other people who come out here? <laughs> you say harder yeah harder yeah. like yeah essentially hey i'm from i'm from baltimore I, i've seen a lot of things and hey i'm gonna run into some shit but it's not really gonna slow me down too much well what i was getting ready to say is that um you know i went to eight different public schools growing up in and around baltimore Every couple of years, my parents got separated and we would move to the suburbs. And so I would go from an inner city community that was all black to uh, a primarily Jewish suburb or um, one that was pre um, predominantly Russian. And so I didn't realize that at the time, but I was developing social skills and be and be, you know, and becoming comfortable around all people. I have right? a similar experience. And, I, I've probably gone to eight schools and. Uh, grew up around all different types of people yeah. as well. Go ahead. And so that that's helped me, yeah. you know, in Silicon Valley, because I don't mind, you know, walking down the street and seeing that, you know, and not very often seeing other black male entrepreneurs, you know, in downtown Palo Alto. I mean, I'd love to see more of us. That's part of the reason why we're doing Steamroll. But, um, you know, that's not going to dissuade me. You know, I'm, I'm going to be friends with whoever's here and I'm going to feel comfortable around anybody. And um, and and that's just a function of, you know, probably how I grew up in my personality. So I think that's been helpful. But um, at the end of the day, you know, um, I believe you can win without being in Silicon Valley. But I do think Silicon Valley accelerates your chances at winning, not just from a capital raising perspective, but from, you know, um, from a business development perspective. I mean, my Rolodex is is the, is enormous in tech. Um, and that wouldn't have happened had I not planted some roots here in Silicon Valley. You mentioned uh, you may run in less than 10 black people on a regular basis in Silicon Valley. That, that can't be. Well, yeah. okay. And, and, and Palo Alto. In Palo Alto. And I consider yeah. Palo Alto to be the Beverly Hills of Silicon Valley, yeah. right? Um, um, but, you know, if I go over to Oakland, that's still part of Silicon Valley. It's Bay Area. Yeah. You know, I, I see lots of black people and lots of black entrepreneurs. And don't get me wrong. Um, you know, I actually came to Palo Alto because I wanted to be, like you said, in the belly of the beast. And I was also looking for a good school system for my kids. Yeah. When right. You, yeah. When you think about inequality, though, if you're saying like, hey, I'm in these streets uh, in Palo Alto, mm -hmm. uh, in Silicon Valley, and I'm not really seeing black people out here. And when you look at, hey. The wealth is concentrated now in Palo Alto, mm -hmm. but there's no black people here. Mm -hmm. So the math mm -hmm. is, it seems like it's super, super mm -hmm. simple mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. well, you know, uh, I, I could talk a lot about 
Palo Alto. Uh, I think Palo Alto today is even different than what it was before I moved out here. When I came out to Palo Alto in the late 90s, trying to figure out if I needed to relocate to Silicon Valley or if I could do it in Maryland as an entrepreneur, uh, it had a different feel. Now Palo Alto is famous um, and there's, you know, people from all over the globe you know, you talk to white people here in Palo Alto and they think it's very diverse. But I tell them Palo Alto is not diverse at all. It's very international. Right. And it's a big difference because uh, there's no social economic diversity in Palo Alto unless you go to the other side to East Palo Alto. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's a problem. You know, um, it, it would be great if more of us because we, we have plenty of successful African-Americans. I mean, I'm from the East Coast. There's lots of successful brothers and sisters doing it at a very high level in D.C., in New York, in Atlanta. Um, but they choose to live there versus versus here because it's probably, you know, um, one is stupid expensive here. Um, but until there's a critical mass, um, then, you know, you're going to have you know, the one and dones who come out for a while and then eventually once, you know, you eventually want to see your people. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, so Mark Zuckerberg uh, testified uh, before Congress uh, today, as you know, uh, are you a fan of Zuckerberg? As an entrepreneur, as an you entrepreneur, know, you're as, a fan of him as an entrepreneur. I don't think you do anything to the scale of Facebook um, without being dogged and uh, smart and uh, taking advantage of, of, um, of leveraging other people's resources and other people's money. And I think Mark Zuckerberg, you know. Um, He's has, done a tremendous job as an entrepreneur executing. No, no question about that. Uh, right? What about as a leader? Uh, you know, we're, now we're talking about character, ethics, yeah, and I mean, stuff I, like that. I can't that. speak to his character because I don't know him. Um, I do think, you know. Sounds like you plan to save. Do you have a business relationship with Facebook? I have no business relationship okay. with Facebook. Period. Um, but no, I mean, am I playing it safe? No, I mean, I, I just, I, I think when you're an entrepreneur, it's easy for people to attack you. Um, and, um, and so you know, there's lots of trollers out there. So I try not to pass judgment until I've walked in a particular person's shoes or I've met them personally and, and spent time with them personally. So I'm not, I can't really talk about Zuckerberg's character. I can talk about the fact that, I mean, you, you look at this scandal, Right. I mean, you look at our election, you look at this whole data and it wasn't even a data breach. It was basically, you know, loose policies around data. I don't think Mark foresaw any of that coming in terms of what happened. Um, but the fact is it, it happened um, and somebody needs to be culpable and responsible for it. So, so now, you know, he's under the fire and as he should be. Right. You know, um, um, now, you know, he built this business on on loose data practices um, because it benefited Facebook. But but now it's it's backfiring because people are, people have used that data in in ill negative ways. Right. So, you know, Facebook isn't all growth and, and connecting everybody in a positive way. It's connecting people in, in a negative way. OK, so the, the stock is trading uh, over one hundred and sixty dollars. If you had to bet in terms of where is Facebook five years from now, would you be long or short? Well, it's interesting. I, I think um, I look at Facebook and I see major challenges on Facebook, but I also look at Instagram and I see a huge 
market on Instagram, right? So I think Facebook is clearly at... Wouldn't the regulations uh, restrict them on Instagram too? Essentially, at least my experience marketing on the platforms is that um, they have gained efficiencies in terms of weaving together, you know, one platform where you can market on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. A lot of people think they're, 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 they're separate, but yeah. my experience is marketers are usually going, yeah. uh, often are going uh, to both uh, platforms using similar targeting structures. Yeah, no, no, I get it. I, I think every major tech company is going to be under an enormous amount of heat around data privacy. And we're already seeing it in Europe with these new laws that are coming out May 1st, right, in terms of data protection laws. And, um, you know, uh, I think all of them will. So I think growth and, and leveraging people's data in ways that sort of hypercharge growth, um, those days might be, you know, starting to sort of come to an end. And it's not just going to affect Facebook. It's going to affect a lot of them. Um, but Facebook is definitely going to be made the poster child, given what happened with Brexit and what happened in the U.S. election. So long or short, five-year time horizon? Neutral. Neutral. Okay. Want to thank uh, Clarence uh, Wooten. Can you tell the audience where they can check you out on uh, Twitter and then also uh, Steamroll? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Clarence Wooten. And um, um, definitely check us out at Steamroll at steamrole.org. There you can learn about Rollcoin as well. So uh, thanks for having me, Jamalin. I appreciate it. It's always great to chat. And, um, you know, welcome to Palo Alto. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You could check me out at Jamarley Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.